Welcome to Reader, I Murdered Him, a real podcast about fake crimes. Every week, I'll tell you about one of my favorite books, but like it's true crime. This podcast isn't spoiler-free, so listen at your own risk. A quick content warning for today's show. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive into the serial killer of Sam Hatton, and it's been rumored that saying her name has the power to manifest her. While these accounts have yet to be proven true, or even studied outside the small town of Sam Hatton itself, I'd strongly advise you against saying her name three times while staring into a mirror or whispering ghost stories about her after midnight. This podcast takes no responsibility for what might happen if you do. Have you ever stood in a dark bathroom? closing your eyes and whispering the name Bloody Mary three times before blinking your eyes open and experiencing that thrill of hoping to see her ghostly silhouette in the mirror, at the same time relieved when there's nothing there after you turn on the bathroom lights? Ever played light as a feather, stiff as a board with a gaggle of chatting preteens in a basement rec room at a sleepover or a tent during summer camp, long after all the chaperones and parents have gone to sleep? and told you that this is, seriously, the last call for Lights Out? Ever wonder what would happen if you really did chant Beetlejuice? Beetlejuice. Beep. Yeah, I'm not going to say it three times. Not stupid. Or maybe these particular urban legends don't mean anything to you. Maybe you've left offerings for the Fae so deep in the woods, you had a moment where your heart beat a little faster as you spun around thinking, for just a moment, that you were lost. Or some force beyond the known universe was trying to keep you deep in the forest's heart. Maybe you've heard the cry of La Llorona late at night, the footsteps of the Windigo, the whispers of ghosts in Coltara, It doesn't matter where you live or where you grew up. There's at least one story that, at some point in your life, filled you with fear and excitement and a need to seek out the forbidden. Just like the girls of the Sam Hatton High School basketball team. Their story started out the way so many of these stories do. The girls were at a sleepover, staying up too late, and one of them decided to tell a story. Do you know about Daphne? She kills with her bare hands. There's no escape. The only way to stay safe? Don't think about her too much. Don't think about the name Daphne. And in any other world, this story would have stayed a story. The sleepover would have stayed a team-building exercise. Instead, within weeks, there would be no more girls' basketball team at Sam Hatton High School. One by one, Daphne would come for them all. I'm Risa P, and this is the story of Daphne Van, the Sam Hatton serial killer. While there are public records available for this case, 
The town of Samhattan is reluctant to talk about Daphne Van and the young women whose lives she ended too soon. Part of it may be the lore surrounding Daphne. This idea that if the town of Samhattan collectively thinks about her, she'll reappear to take more of their young people. Part of it may also be that many of these young women died while under direct police supervision. And I don't just mean police watching the doors or patrolling the streets. I mean, some of the victims' houses were locked down with armed guards stationed outside bedroom doors. And to still have Daphne Van get access to her victims, even after that, has to be the kind of thing the Samhattan police don't want to get out. Also, as Daphne Van is technically dead, according to public records, and was so prior to the murders I'll be discussing today, the official report can't list her as the perpetrator. And the people of Samhattan, even the ones who witnessed Daphne, are reluctant or completely unwilling to talk. Luckily, I have something even better than eyewitness accounts or police reports to get us started with this case. I have the diaries of Kit Lamb, one of the young women on the Sam Hatton basketball team, and the unofficial account of Detective Carla McGowan, who seems to have broken a fair number of police procedures to bring Daphne Van to justice posthumously. Kit Lamb was living with severe anxiety, and she kept a diary to help her work through panic and anxiety attacks. When Daphne came for her and her friends, she used the diary to write about it. And that diary, a first-person chronicle of the terror Daphne Van caused, has been made public. The Sam Hatton girls basketball team first hears the story of Daphne Van from Natasha Monska at a team sleepover. Like most sleepover legends, the story itself is big on scare, but short on details. Daphne Van lived in Sam Hatton in the 80s and 90s. She didn't have friends. For reasons no one who's passed the story on knows, she didn't have family either. She lived alone in a one-bedroom house that was, by all accounts, run down. She was seven feet tall, according to legend, so she stood out no matter where she went, and would have even if she didn't dress head-to-toe in blue denim that was covered with patches from all her favorite heavy metal bands, and surrounded by a cloud of whiskey stench and cigarette smoke. But that wasn't why Daphne was an outsider in Samhattan. A number of parents had reported her for behavior at the local mall, where she would sit at the food court and stare at small children, unblinking, until their parents rushed them away. And while Daphne never made an attempt to physically assault any of these children, every parent who reported her also reported a deep feeling of unease, That kind of gut sense you get as a parent that something isn't right and you have to get your child out of whatever situation you find yourself in. So the people of Sam Hatton gave Daphne a wide berth. But they were never unkind to her. Whoever Daphne's parents were, 
They'd left their daughter alone in a shack of a house. Whatever childhood she'd had herself couldn't have been pleasant. People were willing to give her the benefit of the doubt, even if no one was going to be asking her to babysit. And then Daphne Van dies of carbon monoxide poisoning in her car. There are a lot of rumors as to how it happened, running the gamut from suicide to accident to prank gone wrong to full-out homicide. The only facts the people of Samhattan know, or at least the only ones they're going to admit to knowing, are that Daphne was found by paramedics in her car, and her face was blue. But everything else about Daphne kind of fades away, and becomes overtaken by urban legends whispered at sleepovers. Even the adults old enough to remember Daphne, the real Daphne, can't seem to recall her when you ask them directly. And no one seems to remember who she was or why everyone was afraid of her when she was alive, beyond that strange gut feeling that children weren't safe around her. So when Samhattan High athletes begin to disappear or turn up dead, the cases aren't exactly ignored as much as the town seems to cover them up by having a mass amnesia about them ever having happened at all. But this is before Kit Lamb in her diaries and Detective Carla McGowan in her reports. Because the case of Daphne Van, in life and death, is much darker than anyone in Samhattan wants to admit. And if it seems like she was just the odd-looking, non-conformist outsider, the one a town shunned because she was different, maybe that's because that's what Daphne wants people to think. That she was wrongly shunned, and that she was a victim to be pitied. The reality of Daphne Van's story is much different. Daphne was evil, and it was just easier for the town of Samhattan to forget. But now I want to get back to the stories of some of Daphne Van's victims. While many of them have been lost to time and the strange phenomenon of Samhattan's mass loss of memory, Thanks to Kit Lamb's diaries, we have a good picture of who the young women were Daphne was alleged to have killed most recently. And Daphne's story is as much their story as it is hers. Tammy Jones was new to the Samhattan High School basketball team because she was new to Samhattan High School. As a freshman-to-be, her game was too good to start down at JV and she skyrocketed to the varsity team on merit and hard work. And every one of her teammates respected her for it. She was willing to work, willing to learn, and willing to put in the time, even though she was talented enough to not have to do any of it. Tammy was the first member of the girls' basketball team to be killed. Her parents and the police don't need the medical examiner to perform an autopsy to know she was murdered. Her skull is crushed, and she would be unrecognizable if she weren't laying on her own bed in her own room, just feet away from where her parents were. 
The only sign that someone may have broken into the house is her open bedroom window. There are no fingerprints or tread marks from mud-covered shoes. Nothing to even hint who may have done this to her. But according to Kit Lamb's diary, Kit is certain Tammy Jones, just 14 years old, was the first victim of a newly resurrected Daphne Van. And Kit is convinced that it's her fault, the team's fault, that Tammy is dead. Because they told the story of Daphne. They handed her name around themselves. They woke her up. And while police flounder to find a better alternative suspect than a dead woman, Tammy is not the only victim. Melanie Jack isn't killed in her bedroom. She manages to make it out to the upstairs landing, where she screams down for her mother after claiming to see a tall woman staring up at her from the backyard. Melanie's mother has already made sure all the doors and windows in the house are locked before sending Melanie upstairs to her room. She's sitting in front of the TV, but more than watching what's on, she's sitting sentry to make sure her daughter survives another night. It will not be enough. Melanie is able to scream one more time, but as her mother runs up the stairs, it is already too late. What makes Melanie's case so difficult is that there is no point of entry into the Jack's home for the police to point to as where the intruder got in. All the doors and windows are still locked. There is no shattered glass. The autopsy report gives the same results as Tammy's. The brutal killing wasn't done with a weapon, but by someone's bare hands. Probably a man, according to the official report because most women wouldn't have the upper body strength or height to commit an assault of this nature without some kind of weapon. But Kit, according to her journals, and the other girls on the basketball team, according to cryptic responses they gave during police interviews, are convinced the attacks were done by a woman. Even if they won't say Daphne's name, they all believe. And after Melanie's death in a locked house, with a witness who swears she didn't see anyone come in or out of her daughter's room, Detective Carla McGowan is starting to wonder if there's something she's missing. Something the town of Samhattan is trying to cover up. But Detective McGowan doesn't believe it's actually Daphne. She knows the kind of following that can grow around legends, and she's convinced these murders are the work of a copycat. Someone who loves Daphne Van, is obsessed with her in a way that's twisted their mind, and wants the town of Samhattan to start saying her name again. And then, Kit Lamb finds a man in her bedroom. Are you struggling today? Sometimes life throws you more than you can handle. And when that happens, Void Space is here to help by connecting you with specialists who know how to help. Did you just come back from a sleepover with your best friends at someone's parents' lake house 
where you and your best friend got separated in the woods after discovering some kind of abandoned shack with what appeared to be a demonic altar in it? And did you think your friend was behind you when you started to run, only to realize she was gone in the woods alone all night, and when she came back, she just wasn't the same? Or did you just inherit your family home with your estranged sibling? only to face your shared, unresolved, and buried trauma about a puppet that bullied you into attempting murder? Among other crimes. Void Space is here to help. From your best friend's exorcism, to possessed marionettes, to packs with the devil, or part-time jobs at Ikea where the night shift leaves a lot to be desired, the experts at Void Space know exactly what you need. With the new Void Space Premium Paranormal Trauma Plan, you can get help from experts like exorcists, ghost hunters, and mediums to sort out your paranormal problems and get back to living your otherwise uneventful, boring life. Void Space. We believe you. Kennedy Lichtenstein has almost made it out of Samhattan. She'd graduated from Samhattan High School, but wanted one last season with the basketball team, and just barely made it under the age requirement to play for the summer season. Kennedy would not be, to the outside observer, the kind of person you'd expect to be a basketball star because Kennedy Lichtenstein was born without hands. This wasn't the first thing Kennedy told people when she talked about herself. And as far as the people who knew her were concerned, it really wasn't the most memorable thing about her. But it was the most noticeable. As far as Kennedy is concerned, though, she tells everyone she knows that the way technology is going, she'll have bionic hands by the time she's in her mid-20s and she'll be way out of Samhattan by then, too. Kennedy doesn't hate the town she was born in, but she does want to see the world, and to do that, she has to leave home, which is what she's planning to do now that she's 18. But first, she wanted to have a party with her non-basketball friends in the Samhattan graveyard. It's a weird place for a party if you're not a character in a Victorian Gothic novel, but in Samhattan, the graveyard is where all the fringe kids hang out. The ones who aren't dysfunctional enough to be considered outcasts, but who simply don't fit in with the mainstream of small-town Samhattan. But Kennedy never sees her friends. Never manages to take even a step outside of Samhattan. She is found with her head crushed in. The third victim of a woman who shouldn't exist. Emily Holt's mother does not believe in Daphne Van. She does not believe ghosts can kill flesh-and-blood girls. But after the third member of the Samhattan basketball team has died, she's not taking any chances with her daughter's life. She is going to get her girl the hell out of Samhattan if it kills her, as long as her daughter survives. Not much is known about the deaths of Jan Holt and her daughter Emily. 
only that Jan's Chevy Blazer ran into the brick wall of an abandoned industrial building close to the outskirts of Samhattan. In fact, it was just one street away from the highway that would have taken them out of town. Jan was killed on impact, crushed in her car. Emily was crushed as well, but the damage to her face doesn't match what she would have experienced in the crash. It appears she was killed prior to the car crashing into the wall. Beck Nelson is another one of the younger girls on the varsity basketball team, and she treats basketball like a science experiment. She's all about angles and force and technique. But she looks up to the older girls on the team even though she's just as good. And she's nice. Everyone loves Beck Nelson. She even goes outside to shoot hoops with the police officers assigned to guard her house. In fact, she's just come inside from a quick driveway pickup game when she smells an overwhelming stench of whiskey in her living room, where her mom is sitting in front of the TV. No one sees what crushes her, but even from their posts outside, the police get inside too late to stop it. Natasha Monska is the origin of the Daphne story the Sam Hatton basketball team passed around that night at the sleepover. And even though urban legends aren't supposed to actually kill people, Natasha feels guilty that she's the one who put the name of Daphne Van into her friends' heads. But Daphne comes for her, too. In her house, on a warm summer day, Natasha sees Daphne sitting on the couch of her living room. She runs screaming outside, but her mother goes into the house to confront whatever is trying to kill her daughter, who has killed her daughter's best friends. Natasha's dad is there, too, before the police manage to make it in the house. And maybe... If Natasha had stayed outside, she would have made it through that day. But she's the only one who can see Daphne, and she's scared for her parents. So she goes back inside. She is crushed at the exact same moment the police burst into the house, guns drawn, no perpetrator in sight. And while all this is going on, Detective McGowan is still convinced of her copycat theory. Perhaps less convinced than she was when she first started this case and girls hadn't been murdered by invisible hands in locked houses. But it's the best lead she has. And Daphne Van does have fans. A whole cult of them who call themselves the Vanguards. They meet in basements, smoke a lot of weed, and act like their devotion to Daphne Van makes them edgy. And she finds out about their leader, Zach Gold, through a man named Peter Lords, who was the man found under Kit Lamb's bed, not waiting to kill her, but waiting to watch her be killed by Daphne. When Peter is taken into police custody, most of the Samhattan Police Department believes or desperately wants to believe, that they've caught their man. But Detective McGowan has a gut feeling. 
one that is confirmed by the fact Peter Lords is in custody during Kennedy Lichtenstein's death. That Peter Lords isn't their guy. And she isn't willing to play by the rules to find out who he knows that's willing to carry out Daphne's work, or who might be claiming they are Daphne. And after an unconventional interview, one where the transcripts and video record have mysteriously gone missing, Detective McGowan gets the name Zach Gold. Zach Gold is a leader of several other burnouts who believe Daphne was treated unfairly by the town and that her revenge is righteous. And while they claim not to be behind the murders, they aren't exactly remorseful for them either. But while the rest of Sam Hatton is willing to push the story of Daphne Van deeper down in their collective subconscious, Detective McGowan isn't a local and she's ready to set the record straight on Daphne Van. Daphne Van was murdered, not because she was an outsider or a freak or socially awkward, not in a prank gone wrong by Sam Hatton High Bullies. Daphne Van was murdered because she was a serial killer and the police could never get quite enough evidence to convict her and get her off the streets. Brie Delaney wasn't the first child Daphne kidnapped. She wasn't the first child Daphne killed. But she was the sister of a Sam Hatton girls varsity basketball player. And Amira Delaney wasn't going to wait around for Daphne to take another child while the police tried to get their acts together. She rounded up her teammates, and they came up with a plan. They locked Daphne in her car, and closed the garage door. It might have been too late for Bree, but it wasn't too late to save the other children Daphne Van might have had her eye on. And as Detective McGowan continues her search for the copycat, as well as her research into the original Daphne Van case, there's a piece of the puzzle that's just now starting to connect in her head. The coach of the girls' basketball team Coach Wanda, as she's known around town. Her last name is actually Van Horn. Van Horn and Van are two different last names. Carla McGowan knows that. But Van Horn? Van? Any coincidence can become a clue. And when Detective McGowan begins to dig into Wanda Van Horn, she discovers something else. Her name isn't Wanda Van Horn at all. It's Brie Delaney. Dana and Kit Lamb are the last two ballers left of the Sam Hatton varsity team, and they've escaped their houses and police guards to shoot hoops at the high school basketball court because Kit believes there is magic in that hoop that could send Daphne back to where she came from. And this is where Detective McGowan finds them, along with Coach Wanda, who is snuck in at some point while the girls weren't paying attention. According to her official report, Detective McGowan claims there was also another woman on the court, a woman over seven feet tall, smelling of smoke and whiskey, 
a woman Coach Wanda was willing to protect with her life. Detective McGowan fired her service pistol twice, but only one body is found on the court. There is no trace that Daphne was ever there. And why should there be? Daphne Van had been dead for years. Thank you for listening to Reader, I Murdered Him. If you can't get the name Daphne Van out of your head, go check out Daphne by Josh Mallerman. And if that name sounds familiar to you, it's because Josh Mallerman is also the author of Bird Box, which you've probably heard of if you have a Netflix account. And once you've finished reading Daphne, come talk about this week's book in the Reader, I Murdered Him podcast book club on Goodreads and get the reading list from the stay-at-home creative newsletter on Substack. This is episode 14 and marks month number four of doing this podcast, and I just want to thank all of you that come back every week to listen to these episodes. As of this month, Reader, I Murdered Him, a podcast I thought I'd just be doing for my dad and my husband to moral support listen to, has reached nine countries, 32 states, and dozens of cities. It's been amazing to watch those numbers grow, and however you found this podcast, I'm glad you're here. If you like this podcast and haven't already, please consider subscribing, rating, and leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like it, consider telling 25 of your closest friends and family members who owe you favors to subscribe, and then get 25 of their friends to subscribe too, and see how long you can keep the chain going. It's like an MLM, except it won't end up costing you $10,000 and leaving your garage full of unsellable leggings. If you have any news, stories, or feedback you'd like to share, you can email me at readerimurderedhimpod at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening, and don't forget to come back next week for another episode of Reader, I Murdered Him. Service Mr. Lee.